As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. and welcome back to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic, presented by BetMGM. I'm Max Boltman, with me as always is Prashant Iyer, and we've got a uh, an unusual intro today because the Red Wings not only won, they destroyed the Tampa Bay Lightning in a game Sunday afternoon, 5-1, to one. they poured it on, uh, unlikely cast of characters flooding the score sheet. Prashant, were you able to watch this one, and uh, what was going through your mind as the parade of penalty killers just poured it on the Tampa Bay Lightning. Yeah, I mean, I was I was fully prepared to to sort of only half watch this, so I was uh, in the process of getting my ass kicked by my wife and Uno, and then all of a sudden she's like, "Hey, they scored! Hey, they scored! Hey, they scored!" And I'm like looking up, and I'm like, "What? That's Phil Pula. That's Mark Stahl. That's Michael Rasmussen. That's Darren Helm. <laughs> it's it's Darren Helm." Oh, look at that pass by Luke Lindsay. And I I just like rubbing my eyes going, are, are we are we sure? This is this is the right <laughs> hockey game. Like, I'm not really sure what's happening here. In fact, I was very uncomfortable with it because I, I wasn't really sure what to do. <laughs> you know, it was all of a sudden three goals in the final four minutes of the of the second period there to all of a sudden make it a four-nothing lead against the team you've lost 17 times to. Uh, down in Tampa, it hadn't beaten them since 2011. It was just that came out of nowhere. It was. It, it was a very interesting viewing experience. I was frantically writing because I needed to make a deadline to get my uh, Zadina story up, and I had the same experience of just looking up. Oh my gosh, they scored! <laughs> and, and then I would always go kind of you know either re- either rewind or go check to see what had happened. And uh, I had the same reaction. I mean, when I saw the stall one, I was like, all right, I'm going to have to see this. Really nice goal. Really nice work by Mark Stall. Great goal. I mean, that's the thing is like, it's not like they were bad no, or they lucky cheap. bounces. I mean, the Michael Rasmussen goes a little bit of a lucky bounce coming off the boards, but he goes to the right spot. He's in right there in front of the net. He picks the bounce up. One and, touch. And he backhands the puck. Right. Like, you know, in one touch. The I mean, shoot, 
you know, the Valtteri Filippola goal, you got Luca and Denning threading a pass across the slot through three defenders. <laughs> Valtteri Filippola chokes up on the stick to be able to receive the pass and one times it, you know, high blocker side on, on Chris Gibson, you know, a goalie starting for the first time in three years. It's like, I, I don't know what I was watching. This is just, this is just magical. So I ended up, you know, for the third period, grabbing a big pour of bourbon and sitting on the couch and enjoying that one. Cause uh, th- that was something that I don't think we've really gotten to experience in quite some time. As much as I don't think they were too cheap of goals. I do think this is like a two, one game. If Andre Vasilevsky is in net. no, no shade to Gibson. Yeah. I mean, that that's fair. You know, Vasilevsky, we talk about on the lot. He's, he's paid a lot of money. But man, he's been unreal this year. Easily the the Vezina runaway for me. So, you know, you put him in and, and maybe there is something psychologically that that triggers for, for Tampa to, to play a little bit better. But, uh, you know, the thing is about this game, the Wings earned it. And I think even if Vasilevsky's in the game, I still think they win it. I mean, you, you finish that game with a five on five expected goals, four percentage of 65 percent against Tampa. Uh, which is just unheard of for the Red Wings in those games. They hold Tampa to a grand total of 0.8 expected goals against at five on five. This is the best offense in hockey. So real, uh, just that was a victory through and through earned. I think, yes, Vasilevsky makes a difference, but that, that shouldn't take anything away from how well they played, you know, for the first 50 minutes or so. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and, and it was a good effort. And, and certainly for them after the way that, uh, well, I guess they, they've really strung together a few nice games here since the first game in Florida, ultimately. I mean, it, it was the second game they played, I thought, well. Uh, and then the first game in Tampa it was a tough start. But I think they righted the ship and they only lost by one goal in the end of that one. And then to come out and do what they just did against the Lightning, I thought was impressive. They're up to 13 wins now. Five away from topping what they were at last season in 71 games. You think they get there? Getting there. Uh, they're getting real close. Yep. Uh, you know, it's getting uh, getting close to crunch time here. I think we're coming up on our preseason predictions here. Uh, and they're starting to, to maybe right the ship in that direction. So we'll see. I mean, one of the more impressive things to me is they did this very shorthanded. I mean, they did this without Fabry, Ryan, Bertuzzi. Who else is out? Somebody else is out. Gagne and Bernier. Of yeah, course. I mean, Gagne yeah. was out, you know, so they, they've been able to play well. You know, Stetcher's been in and out and hadn't been really playing at yep. the level he had been playing at. Uh, and, and and so it's it's real impressive uh, because, I mean, don't look now. You and I talked about how uh, March and April had the potential to be really brutal for the Red Wings as they had a lot of games against the Florida teams, a lot of games against Carolina and Dallas. I mean, don't look now. Uh, I think over the last... 20, if I were, if I did my math right, they're 9-9-2. Nine, nine, and two. That's 500 hockey, baby. All right, so they've played the Lightning six times this year. Don't look. Tell me what the goal differential is, the Red Wings' goal differential against Tampa in six games this season. Oh, it's got to be like minus two or something around that ballpark because they've really only had one stinker against them, and even that stinker wasn't that bad. I believe it is exactly minus two. <laughs> All right, there we go. Look at that. So they've each won a 5-1 game. They've each had a two-goal win, and then the Lightning have two more one-goal wins. So it is yeah. minus two. Yeah. Got a lot. Yeah, and so you're talking about they've played the Lightning pretty well this season, something that has not – you haven't really been able to say for the last seven years. So 
All in all, really impressive performance from the team of late. What do you think of Grice? 27 saves on 28 shots. I mean, I think statistically probably his best game of the year, certainly considering the opponent. But um, visually, what do you think? Yeah, I think visually Thomas Grice is starting to find his game. I think, you know, after the the series of Pickard starts and and then Pickard gets chased in that uh, game against Florida, I think Grice has looked quietly very good um, the last handful of games. And he's starting to find... I think the rhythm, the way to play, some of the stuff that I think caught your eye maybe in his earlier games was he often looked like he was scrambling or chasing or maybe behind the play to a certain extent. He was not making the right reactionary reads and often would have to chase or make these kind of very explosive movements to catch up. I think if you go back and watch that that Tampa game on, on Sunday, you didn't really see any of that from him. Yes, he had the one outstanding stop where he makes the explosive push and makes that great blocker slash stick save. Um, can't remember who was on. Uh, I think it was on Stamkos, or uh, at least Stamkos was involved in that rush. But you're seeing him play a lot more composed, controlled, and basically uh, in a lot better position. And so I think that's potentially a really encouraging sign for the Wings uh, particularly if they are going to explore moving Bernier, depending on you know if he's able to come back from injury before next Monday. What's interesting to me, I mean, so if you start at the, whenever he came in in that first Florida game, these are his save percentages. 960, 917, 931, 964. These are all raw numbers, stats. I mean, they don't tell you a lot about the expected goals. And as we know about the Red Wings D, um, they have put their goalies in a better position this year than they did last year. Um, and, you know, kind of around the middle of the league in that department. But those are good numbers. I mean, by almost any measure, even if you want to dock it a little bit for for better defensive play in front of him than he had been getting, uh, pretty good. Yeah, and over his last four games, uh, to factor in that expected goals uh, that you're talking about, if you look at all situations, he saved... more goals, or he basically saved 0.2 goals more than expected on Sunday against Tampa. That was 0.74 on Saturday against Tampa. He comes in minus 0.26 in that uh, second Florida game, but then when he comes in in the first Florida game, he's at 0.65. So been positive three out of the last four games since he's come in for that Florida game. And so I think all signs are pointing to him sort of writing the ship and figuring out uh, kind of how to play behind this Red Wings team. Yeah, so those are the, those are I guess the the positives of the Red Wings uh, series here this weekend. I mean, I, I still think some people are waiting for uh, the offensive burst to come from some of the main guys. That being Dylan Larkin, who did get a power play goal. Anthony Manta had a couple of assists, um, and Philip Zadina, uh, who I thought had a really nice play to keep the uh, puck in right before the Larkin goal. I did an article about the increased. Um, you know, benefit that he's getting on the four check. Some you saw the back check play that saved a goal in the Saturday afternoon game. I think he's rounding out well, but I, you know, I do think, you know, the fact that it was all these kind of guys who are usually the more the defensive minded penalty killers or outright not in the lineup guys who were scoring um, did make for an interesting wrinkle here because I think Red Wings fans might have even been like two notches more excited if, if the names that were on the score sheet were the ones that they've been kind of holding out. Uh, holding their breath to see, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think, you know, that everyone's wanting to see those uh, <laughs> points come from those guys. But at the end of the day, scoring depth is what gets it done no for doubt. you. And, and so, 
You know, we, we talk about it because if you play against Florida and Carter Verhage's the guy tearing you up, it, it's never really Barkov or anything yeah. like that. But uh, the scoring depth is honestly the key here. And so I think if you're the Red Wings and your top line can, you know, maybe control play or at least hold the other team's top line even and your secondary scorers are able to chip in and do the job, then I think that's really all you're asking for. Um and, and I think the offense will come from those top guys, but I think that's where a lot of the focus is when you're talking about the opposition. Like, who's not going to load up against Larkin, Zadina, and Fabry? Who's not going to load up against those guys or sub in Anthony Mantha? If you're looking at the Red Wings team, that's where you're going to focus your attention, right? Yeah. So it, it is going to be exponentially harder for them to get their job done. But if those secondary scorers can consistently find a way to contribute make plays, keep the pressure on the opposition, it does make it harder to fixate on uh, the Red Wings' top line and may make their job a little bit easier. Yeah. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Well, let's transition off of that into what I think is going to be our main topic for the day, um, which is kind of the expectations of uh, prospects and players. Obviously, the the 2021 draft is starting to uh, draw into uh, into the picture here, Corey Proudman had his latest rankings out last week with a new number one, Dylan Genther out of the WHL. Um, but it, we thought it was a, a kind of a good natural time to talk about something that you and I have texted about. And that's kind of the expectations for, for players in the draft. And and it starts with kind of what we view as a uh, as a, a problem that maybe we have been uh, a part of. Certainly, I think I have uh, in terms of, you know, when you write about draft prospects, um, you talk about what they can do, you talk about what they can be and whether, whether it's intended this way or, or it's not, what it has the effect of doing is setting a bar. And if a player doesn't meet the bar of what the expectation becomes, uh, based on kind of their pre-draft scouting report or, or potential, so to speak, um, I think people can sometimes view that as a letdown and, to me, you know, when I write about it, you you give the potential not as a, as the bar, but as that this is what you're hoping for. Like this is why you're making this bet. This is what you're hoping they can turn into. But that potential is not the expectation. But you don't always get to kind of pick and choose um, what people's takeaways are going to be when they read stuff like that. And I think it's one reason why sometimes prospect writers are skeptical to give a comparison, right? Because you'll hear someone give a comparison of a play style. And they think it means, okay, this is going to be their impact level. And those are often wildly different things, partly because the comparison is usually a really elite player. I mean, it's usually a player that the reason that you're using that comparable is because that's that's how you uh, would envision a, a team that drafts him trying to develop them. That That's like an absolute pipe dream. Um, doesn't mean it's totally impossible, but it's in their one or two percent 
likelihood outcomes, not their 75 to 80% uh, outcomes. So um, we wanted to kind of spend a lot of time today talking about, you know, what, what to expect out of someone in the draft. Um, what's a, what's a good NHL player? What's a top line NHL player? What's a second line NHL player actually mean? Because that's the other side of this conversation is if I say someone's a top line NHL player and you take that to mean one thing, but I mean it as another, well, we're having different conversations and we're setting different expectations in that same conversation. So, uh, I've been rambling for a couple minutes now here, but let's dive into that. Um, and, and I guess you can kind of kick us off for Yeah. So I think, you know, you, you raise a great point that oftentimes, like when we talk about, uh, you know, projections for these players and and, and whatnot, and even relative to where they're picked, I think there's these expectations that get attached and people tend to focus on maybe a singular outcome for the player. But I think really, when you think about guys, particularly at the time of the draft, I think you have to recognize that there's a range of outcomes that can happen for the player, right? You may be picking a guy because his upside is that he is going to be a top six winger or a top line forward or a number one center, right? You're picking him for that upper part of the ceiling, but you have to remember that there's also a lower part. What happens yeah. if he doesn't reach that projection and what's his floor going to look like? And then there's a range of outcomes in between. And within those range of outcomes, there's maybe a certain set of probabilities attached to the likelihood of the player hitting that peak or the the floor. And so I think there's a great analogy that uh, Sam Hinkie, so I think uh, Sam Hinkie with Philadelphia 76ers, uh, formal general manager for them, used to do this with his scouts. And it's a great concept. What he would do is he would ask the scout, will the player pan out or not? But instead of letting the scout answer yes or no, what he would do is he puts five cups in front of the scout and he's going to give them 10 marbles. And those five cups are labeled out of the league, bench player, high rotation, starter, and all-star. And the scout has to take those 10 marbles and distribute them in the cups based on the likelihood he thinks that player lands in that bucket. And I think that's what we sometimes forget to do when we're working with certain players is, okay, we're going to talk about only about the upside. We're only talking about what that highest end thing is there. But if you're only putting one marble in that cup, you're putting five marbles at you know average NHLer, which I think sometimes that's what we are, are doing implicitly, you have to recognize then the likelihood of them reaching one spot versus the other. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and, and I think even those labels play a big part of this of like if, if a scout is putting his marbles in let's say the first line NHL or thing he and the GM have to have mutual understanding about what that means right like if he says I think he's gonna be a first line NHL or and the GM goes okay great he's gonna be a 75 point guy the scout might be pretty bummed when the GM's mad at him when the guy is a 55 point guy and he's like that's what a first line NHL or is and the GM's like well but I thought I thought you meant 75. And so I'm disappointed in, in your pick. And, and you say, no, I nailed it. I did it. He's exactly what I said he was going to be right. Like that, that can lead to a lot of misunderstandings, right? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. If you don't have the same definition of, you know, a particular level, then you're going to be in a different spot, right? Because hypothetically, let's say you're an NHL scout and you're saying, uh, who's going to be in, all, in, in your upper bucket as all-star, Okay, you nailed it on Tyler Bertuzzi, but Tyler Bertuzzi is very different than Connor McDavid. Yeah, right. But they're both in the same bucket, yes. right? And you maybe have had would have had more mar- marbles in the McDavid All Star bucket, 
But you have to agree on what's an all-star, right? And the NHL all-star system doesn't maybe make that conducive. But even beyond just using the term all-star, I think there's a huge discrepancy in what's actually a first-line player. And I think this tends to come up a lot when we talk about first-line, second-line scoring, particularly the use of points. So, Max, I think you kind of went through and sketched out, uh, you know, based on... I guess a lot of the numbers, what, what is actually a first line, second line, third line, you know, forward and so on. Right. So and, and it, you get into some gray area here because you don't ever want to use points as a tell all, right? Like there's guys who are going to score like a quote unquote first line player who maybe for, for one reason or another, just kind of aren't to me. Like, you know, some guys are going to have more minutes. They're going to have more prime opportunity on the power play than other guys who aren't going to score in that role. Cause they're on a better team and they're used less or used in less favorable situations, or it's just like their contributions that make them a really good player. Um, aren't what's captured in points. Those being things like uh, defense, uh, what I mean, basically that's the other thing. Um, <laughs> that's the other side of the hockey game. But uh, nevertheless, it, points are not a catch-all. But even if we're just talking about production, I, I find sometimes if I'll, I'll say I think somebody can be a middle six uh, NHL forward, and it seems that when I say that, people think that, uh, okay, yeah, right, middle six, that's like a 60-point player, 50 to 60-point player. Let's be be conservative, right? Uh, no, I, that's not what that is at all. The middle six is kind of uh, 30 to 40 in my mind, 30 to 45. Um, and and so that's rooted in kind of what, uh, you know, how many forwards score at, at each of these levels. If you want to go back through, let, let's take the last three full NHL seasons here. So, and I'm just going to give you some, some key points of the distribution, right? So just establishing, right, there's 31 NHL teams. Let's make the cutoff 90 forwards. Um, 90 forwards would be your top line. Okay. So in 2018, 19, the 90th highest scoring forward had 52 points and the 90th highest scoring forward had 22 goals in 2017, 18, the 90th highest scoring forward had 52 points and 22 goals. And in 2016, 17, the 90th highest scoring forward had 50 points and 20 goals, right? So that's kind of our first line pool by just production. So the top 90, if, if all you cared about was points, your top 90 is 52 points and about 22 goals. Now, some of those guys are going to have played fewer games and we're going to know that they could have done better than that. Like, uh, it, you know, we're talking about here, you know, guys who play 71 games and so they finish with 51 points. But if if, if, you, if they played even five more games, they'd clear that bar, they'd move that median. But if you want to even just be, a, you know, be a little more aggressive there, I think you can comfortably say that if someone has 25 points or 25 goals or 60 points, that's a first line player. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's in fair. terms of raw pro- production. There's other things that can make you that, um, but I think that's a fair. Like, if you hit that bar, you'd have a hard time convincing me that someone is not that. They'd have to be really bad defensively for you to convince me they're not first line forward at that point. Let's take it to the next one, right? So 180. That would be ha- ha- the top half of NHL forwards or top six, as you would put it. 180th forward in 2018-19, 34 points and 14 goals. 180th forward in 2017-18, 34 points and 14 goals. 180th forward in 2016-17, 32 points. I think it was, I don't know if it was 14 goals for that or not, or if that's a typo by me as I was going through this, but at least 32 points. It might actually be 14 goals and that's just what it is. So again, you can bump up for injury a little bit, especially as you get down into this range. But if you want to say, you know, 36 to 38 points and 14 to, you know, or, or, or 15 to 16 or 17 goals. That's kind of what a top six forward is. Now that's 
that's not most, that's the bottom end. But if you're saying that someone who has, let's say, 45 points and 19 goals is a third liner, uh, that's not true. And, and this is a conversation that we had a lot in the offseason when Tyler Bertuzzi signed. There was a lot of conversation of, is he really a top six forward? And the answer is yes. I mean, the, the one the one variable with Bertuzzi that I think is interesting is minutes wise, what would happen to his raw production numbers in less minutes. But, you know, Tyler Bertuzzi is a player who clears that, that point barrier pretty easily for me. I mean, it's, it's not the, maybe the best player on your second line, but comfortably a, a good second line player. And for the Red Wings, it makes sense that he's on their first line, right? Like, I mean, he's a guy who, Last season had 48 points. Season before that had 47 points. Again, points far from anything, far from capturing the whole picture. But just on production, he produces like a high-end second-line forward, right? That's relevant because if 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 I say someone's a second-line forward and, and you think that means they're 58 to to 65 points, well, you're just gonna be let down when when they're not that, right? So that's among the forwards. We can do it again for D uh, if you want. I don't need to go in, into quite as much depth, but like broadly speaking, the top 60 defensemen over an 82 game season over the last few years uh, have had about 28, 29 points. Um, and so I, I think, you know, if, if you ask me today, what's more at Cider going to score like, I think I'd tell you probably about 30 points. And I think I'd have a lot of let down listeners out there when really he's an excellent defender and 30 points already puts him in that first pair territory if it was just about his points. And so to me, if he scores 30 to 35 points and defends like we think he's going to defend, that's a really great player. That's a clear top top pair of defensemen. Um, but because, you know, I think maybe there's some ideas out there about how many players score in different tiers, it might be a letdown. In reality, in, in 2018-19, six players had 100 points, 14 players, including that other six, had 90, and 27 had 80 or more. I think that's a, a fair cutoff for like the elite is, is kind of that 80 point range. So 27 um, had 80 last year in 2017, 18, there were only 21 with 80, only three had a hundred and only nine had 90 in 2016, 17. And this is kind of crazy. Only one player had a hundred points. He was the same player who was the only one that had 90 plus that's Connor McDavid and only seven had 80 plus. So you could even argue that that elite threshold is lower than 80 points. You could argue that it's like 75 points for that really elite. And that's just production, right? Like I'm not including necessarily guys like, um, Patrice Bergeron, although he was injured in 1819, Ryan O'Reilly, Matthew Kachuk, Mark Stone. These are guys who I would say are no doubt elite players any day of the week. Austin Matthews didn't have 80 points in 2018-19, again, because of injury. But even among the guys who mostly played a full season, not all the elite players did that, partly because of what they bring in other ways. So um, long-winded, yes. Uh, a lot about points, which again, is not maybe the most important stat out there. But if it's the one that you're going to judge a guy on in terms of production... I think it's fair to have kind of a set established thresholds there of, of what you're actually talking about when you, when you say a top six player. That probably just, if, if I say something that someone in the draft is like a top six player, it probably means I think they're going to score about 50 points. Yeah, I think that's a really great way of just walking through what the different tiers are and the scoring tiers. And I think it is somewhat sobering to see just how few players really reach I think some of these thresholds that are thrown out there, you know, you talk about the 30 goal scorer, you talk about the, you know, 70 point, 80 point player. I think you have to recognize that, you know, Max, as you laid out, 8% of forwards hit 80 points or more. Right. And, you know, in the last three years, right? 8%. So if you're drafting a guy and you're saying, 
Oh, yeah, yeah, he's an 80-point forward. You're immediately placing him amongst the top 8% of forwards in the National Hockey League, which is a bold claim to make. You know, you, you're calling someone a 30-goal scorer? In 18-19, our last full season, you had 45 guys score 30, which is actually 12% of forwards. So, again, you know, you want to call someone a 30-goal 30, 30 scorer, you're talking about a forward that's in the top 10% of the league in scoring. Um and so I think that's just really important to help kind of reset what expectations are. And Max, as you kind of laid out, those are what the tiers are like. But I think the fascinating thing and the, and the part that maybe also causes some disconnect is those 90 players are not equally distributed. Right. Those, you know, those defensemen are not equally distributed. The really good teams find a way to have more than their fair share. You know, you look at Tampa. Tampa had three of the top 20 point getters in 1819. You know, including Kucherov, who was at 128, you know, in 1890, just a ridiculous amount. You know, you look at Colorado right now, and they're just absolutely loaded with, you know, McKinnon and Rontanen and Landeskog and Brandon Saad and Jonas Donskoy. And you can go on and on and on. It's that ability to get more than your fair share that turns you into a really good team. So, you know, it's not to say that Tyler Bertuzzi can't, you know, isn't a top six forward. He is a top six forward, but. You need more guys like that to really be those contenders. You really need to have more than your fair share to really be a legitimate Stanley Cup contender. Yeah, and what we're talking about here is kind of what you'll often see is the construction of a contender is not that of a team that has six 60-point players. In fact, I'm not aware of a team that's ever had six 60-point players. Uh, Even if you go back and you look at that 2018-19 Lightning team, um, that was unbelievably good, right? Like They were like, you know, peak Red Wings of the 90s level good. They were threatening those wins totals. Don't look. I want to. I want you to guess this. How many 60-point players do the 2018-19 Tampa Bay Lightning have? Players, not just forwards. So you could even include Victor Hedman. How many 60-plus point players do they have? Three. Three. That's exactly right. Kucherov, Stamkos, yeah. and Braden Point. But yeah. they had one guy who was basically accounted for two 60-point players in Nikita Kucherov. And they had two more guys in Stamkos and Point who were 90-plus point players. Like, that's the embarrassment of riches. It's not that they had, you know, 60-point guys all over the lineup. It's that they had 40 to 50-point guys all over the lineup. Um, and and then three mega elite, you know, top 10 scoring in the league players in Stamkos, Point, and Kucherov. So when we talk about elite players here, that's the reason that it matters. Not because they're so easy to find. And we'll often joke about the elite player store that you just go shopping at. No, in fact, there's probably less than less than two in a given draft, like and maybe even less than one in the average draft. It's, it probably averages out to be less than two, more than one, because some will have multiple. But, you know, you think about this and, and if you if you go into a draft with, say, the fourth overall pick, which is what the Red Wings had last year. The odds of you getting one of those 80, 90 point guys is still against you. Like you're still should not be expecting that um, from, say, Lucas Raymond. But I think he's going to be a first line forward. Um, but I don't know that you can really expect him to 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 be in that tier of the 10 best scorers in the NHL. That doesn't seem realistic to me. And, and I would completely agree with you. And so, you know, I think this uh, another sobering piece to really attach to this is um, when you're looking at draft pick value and you're looking at kind of how you know what kind of player are you going to get with the first pick the second the third the fourth you know we can do this with draft pick value charts I think a lot of people are familiar with Michael Shucker's chart that's been circulating for probably the last decade since he made it um, based and that's based on actually games played 
you know, Dom Lucision uh, has actually updated that chart uh, using a war model, which is his GSVA yeah. uh, data. And I think the fascinating part that's worth uh, kind of distilling and, and kind of not forgetting is the difference in value based on the player you're going to get from the first overall pick to the fourth overall pick is the same as the difference between the fourth overall pick and the 116th pick. Okay. That's just going from one to four and four to 116. The difference in value is the exact same. And so that's to tell you, you know, it's not impossible to get those players. We see it happen all the time, but you are much more likely to get that player at first overall. You know, the difference between first and second is the same as the difference between second and seventh. Like it very quickly drops off uh, here. And so, you know, you have to really rein in your expectations because, yes, there is a chance that your fourth overall pick is Mitch Marner. But yes, there's also a chance your fourth overall pick is Eric Goodbranson. And and that's that's the range of outcomes that bringing it back to the, the, the marble analogy that I mentioned earlier with Sam Hinkie, you have to recognize that your confidence at fourth overall should not be the same in that high-end bucket as it maybe is when you have that first overall pick. Yeah, and Marner's a great person to bring up here because I think he's the kind of player who maybe skews the expect. I mean, Lucas Raymond has been stylistically comped to Mitch Marner here, right? But it's important to note, Mitch Marner is a first overall pick player. Like, he's a... Has he had has he had ninety points? I think he's had ninety. Has he got a hundred? I think he's I think he had ninety last year. I mean, in, unbelievable. Or, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Mitch Marner is a is a elite top ten scorer, and he had, right now, if I was doing my selkie ballot, uh, Mitch Marner would be in strong consideration to be on that on that list of five. He is an elite player um, in every facet of the game. So that's you know that's the when you talk about Mitch Marner going fourth overall. The reason that stuff like that gets brought up in, in in talks is because you just never know what a player is going to become once you once you get them and you have to give them time to, to do their thing. He's not an expectation for a fourth overall pick. If you took Mitch Marner first overall, you're thrilled with the value that you got out of that pick. Um, and so I think that's kind of a relevant expectation setting, you know, I guess, boundary to place here. I mean, as we look into 2021 draft... I don't know that there's going to be a star as, as you would term it in this draft. And and that's, you know, my opinion is not all that important here. They're going to decide if they're stars or not, but I certainly wouldn't expect, even if the Red Wings get the first overall pick, a player that they choose to be a star. I mean, if, if they took, let's say a couple of the guys that we've talked a lot about on here, if they took Matthew Beniers and Beniers, uh, whether that's first overall or fourth or whatever, let's say they take Beniers and Beniers becomes a 55 point very good defensive center. Are you happy with that at fourth overall, let's say? Yeah, you have to be happy with that because, again, your range of outcomes at fourth overall is very wide. And, you know, so if you're getting 55 points, first line center, right? And good defender, uh, right? And good defender, you are you have exceeded your likely expectation for that pick. You haven't hit that pick. You've exceeded what you're likely to get from that pick. Right. And I think that's what we sometimes miss because, I mean, you know, for fun, if you run through some of the previous, you know, fourth round picks, you know, start in 2015 for for Mitch Marner, you know, you go back to 2014, it's Sam Bennett. 
Sam Bennett's in trade rumors right now, yeah. right? Uh, you know, hasn't really lived up to the same billing that people were expecting. You know, 2013, it's Seth Jones. And as good of a point getter Seth Jones is, there's a lot of deficiencies to his game defensively that, you know, are, are somewhat of a challenge. But maybe Seth Jones on the on the upside there. You know, 2012, Griffin Reinhardt. Griffin Reinhardt has played 37 NHL games despite being drafted in 2012. That's a huge miss. You know, 2011's Adam Larson, another guy who, again, hasn't really lived up to the expectations, and maybe 2010's Ryan Johansson. I mean, you can go on and on and on with this, but there's a wide range of what you can get, and getting a 55-point first-line good defensive center is on the upper end of your possible outcomes there. Absolutely it is. And if you're getting a first-pair defenseman, like let's say they they take Owen Power, and Owen Power gets, again, 30 to 35 points as kind of his, his baseline in the NHL. You know, we'll see how Owen Power's defensive game comes along, but that at least gives him a chance with kind of, you know, good defending to be a legit first pair NHL defenseman. If you get a legit, I think Owen Power is going to go number one overall. And and I really hope that the, the fan base that, uh, that he's drafted into understands that, you know, the Kale McCars of the world that are going to score like crazy uh, are not the expectation for a defenseman picked even in the top five. I mean, let, let's go back to that we were just talking about. So if the if we're saying that the you know threshold for elite scoring forwards is uh, is 80 points, for defensemen, only 13 defensemen in that last full season had 50-plus points. 13, right? So 50-plus points is not this baseline of like if you can't hit 50, uh, you're not a number one or, or a top pair you know, defenseman, even if you're an offensive defenseman and you're scoring 40 plus points, that's really good. (laughs) You know, like that's, and again, just by production, like if you, if they're empty points, they're empty points and that's, that merits discussion. Um, but you know, I just think that these are kind of expectations and, 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 uh, definitions, I guess that, that are really worth bearing in mind as you go into something like this. Now, you know, the other side of it is I think people could take this conversation pessimistically and negatively as like, oh my gosh, the Red Wings don't have these, you know, 90 point guys. It's going to take forever. That's possible, but it's kind of also in line. And what I see as, as ultimately a, a rather sunny view of, of the future is that you don't need to sweat how many, um, you know, how many 60 plus point guys you have. Cause I think you already, already have two to three to maybe four in the system. You're just missing the 80, 90 point guys. And those are really hard to get. There's no doubt about that. It might take you you know, five more years to find them. And that would, that would be tough, but it also might only take you two, you know? And so I, I think that that's a relevant thing to say uh, here as well, is that when, when I talk about the Red Wings having, for the most part, the depth that they need at, at their positions, um, except goalie, um, that's basically to say, now, if you can find the elite talent, I think you're going to be in business, not immediately, because it takes guys time to get their legs under them. But in time, I mean, we did that exercise with the Lightning, but you can go through almost every team from that last playoff and it's it's like clockwork. I mean, there's there's a few elite players at the top of the lineup uh, and then there's a, a bunch of really good depth. I mean, you so here, here's a team that maybe kind of bucks the trend that we've talked about is is that 18-19 Sharks team. I think they went to the conference finals. Is that right? Or they go all the way to the cup final? 18-19 Sharks, I believe, conference finals, if I'm remembering correctly. Yes, that's right. They lost to the Blues. Oh, because the Blues won the Cup. Um, so, you know, they have Brent Burns as their leading scorer, but 83 points. That's an absurd season for a defenseman, point per game. 
Then they go Hurdle, Couture at 70 to 75, and then Pavelski and Meyer 60 plus, and then they had two more guys, three more guys in the 50s, Thornton, LeBanc, Kane. That's an insanely deep team, and oh, by the way, maybe the greatest offensive defenseman of the era in Eric Carlson, who didn't play enough games, but also probably would have been up in that 70 plus point range. That's an absurdly deep team. They do it with depth, right? Um, and, and they do it with a lot of high end depth, right? Those are first line players through, you know, the, through the top of the third line, ultimately. That's one way you can do this. I mean, that that's one thing if you want to take comfort in, what if, what if Shane Wright never comes to Detroit? What if Connor Bedard never falls into Detroit's lap in the draft? Well, then you just got to stack up on those 60 plus points players. Um, but I think there's kind of this myth that, that until you, um, until you have 60 point players on every line, uh, and to 90 point players at the top, you're cooked. And that's just not the reality. I mean, the, the Bruins, they've got that elite first line, right? Maybe the best line in all of hockey, Marshawn, Pasternak, and Bergeron, hundred points, 81 points, 79 points up top. But then you go to the second line and yes, David Krejci, unbelievable player, 73 points and, and a good two-way player there. Um, but after that, it's DeBrusque, 42, Danton Heinen, 34, Charlie McAvoy is a defenseman, 28, Corrali, 21. I think they added Charlie Coyle that year. I don't know what his scoring was, but this is not unattainable uh, once you have the elite players. And, you know, I, I realize that the elite players are the, are the ultimate like uh, difference maker here that you can't just say, well, great, I'll go get me some elite players, but it's relevant. It's relevant to know that ultimately I think the Red Wings pretty much have what they need aside from the elite players. And you can take that as a positive or you can take that as a negative. That's your choice, but it's just relevant to know. Yeah. And and so, and it's not that I many, think it's this, two or three, two or three elite players there, which right, I would right. for anyone is a lot, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll just go down to the elite players exactly. and get a couple from there. But, you know, I think the fascinating part to all of that, and this could be its own episode in its entirety, so I won't open Pandora's box here, but, you know, I have some people, people, you guys probably all know Chris Watkins on Twitter. He's at Yolo Pinato. Um, and while his takes are often scorching hot, the one take that resonates with me is every move a rebuilding team makes should be geared towards obtaining elite talent. Every move by a rebuilding team should be geared towards getting elite talent. That is not going to the elite talent store, but that's putting yourself in the position to obtain it, whether that is doing everything you can to land those high draft picks, uh, selling out um, you know, for guys in, in unrestricted free agency or through a trade that uh, might be an attainable move for you. But as of right now, it tends to be through the draft where a lot of these guys come into play. I mean, we're going to see this in 22 uh, with – you know, Shane Wright going at the top 23 with Mitchkoff and, and Bedard. I mean, Bedard is the leading scorer in the WHL. He's 15 years old. Like, that's that's an elite player. And, uh, you know, moves should be made to, to get towards that. Now, you know, that's why I think we have talked so much about <laughs> entertaining these different trade ideas and, and whatnot, because that's honestly what sits in the back of my mind. But, you know, you can win hockey games by not necessarily having the elite scores so long as you have those players that can impact, you know, the game throughout uh, different areas. I mean, the the blues that you threw out, Max, are a great example. I mean, Ryan O'Reilly is the only guy over 70 points. Tarasenko's over 60. That's it. Yeah. Two 60-point guys on a cup championship team. So you can do it. It's a lot harder that way. It's probably less sustainable that way, but it's still feasible and possible, and the Red Wings still have a good recipe right now 
but you should still at the same time have that kind of mindset or thought process where do I need to sell out even more for elite talent? I do think it's less sustainable because it introduces more variables. The, the more guys you're relying right. on to form that depth, the more you know, more likely it is one of them is going to have a bad year or get hurt or leave or that you're going to have to overpay on the salary cap and it forces these hard decisions. You know, people talk about how much money these elite players make, but they're almost worth well more than that just on the certainty that they give you because you can set your clock by, you know, Austin Matthews to score 40 to 50 goals. You can set your clock to Patrick Kane to give you 100 points. He's going to do it every single year and you know exactly what it's going to cost and then you fill in the rest around him. Um, that's how you win. That's how, I mean, that, that's how you, you're able to make these moves. I mean, the lightning, Steven Stamkos, Nikita Kucherov, Victor Hedman, Braden Point. It's an embarrassment of elite riches. And yet you could almost, I mean, certainly all those guys uh, could be paid a lot more than they are because of, of the value that they bring. And, and the fact that they aren't, you know, puts the lightning in a position to have both. They have both. They have unbelievable depth and the elite players. And that's why they're, you know, a complete monster. Your uh, your hometown Carolina Hurricanes made this uh, Eastern Conference final in 2018-19. They had Sebastian Ajo and Tavo Teravainen up front above 70 points. Not a single other player above 55. I mean, they did it with depth and they did it with the best blue line in the NHL. Dougie Hamilton, Jacob Slavin, Brett Pesci. At the time, it was Justin Falk. Um, and some good depth pieces too, and like a Calvin DeHaan and a Trevor Van Riemsdyk. You, you can do this different ways, and if the lottery never breaks your way, then your decision is made for you. Um, and if it does break your way, then you just try to be the lightning and have both. Um, you know, you brought up that every decision should be geared toward getting elite talent, and I agree with it to a point, um, to 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 a high point actually. But I do think there's also this thing of, okay, so if if uh, if you have an elite or if if you have like a good you know, second line player and you can trade it for a first round pick, it still does to me doesn't answer the question of should you do it? Because that first line pick, like you said, might not be all that valuable in, in terms of netting you that same player back. Like if, if you can give me the 25th pick in the draft and, and I can guarantee myself that I'm going to walk away with a, you know, 45 point forward with it, I will do that. I mean, I'd certainly rather take the swing on the guy that could be an 80 point player, but it's, it's statistically really, really unlikely that that guy's still on the board by there. And so then you get into a tough spot where I think age has to be a, a major decision maker in that point. If you have a 28-year-old winger, 29-year-old winger, and you're you're nowhere near and you want to make that trade for the 25th pick, I think you can justify it because you know, you're know you at least going to have a prayer of getting um, kind of par value and you're at least going to be more in line with your timeline. But you know, it's one reason why when we've talked about Mantha and Bertuzzi before, I, I think it needs to be either a prospect that you have more certainty with or something more than just a, a late first round pick if you want to consider a move like that. Because the odds that you're even going to replace a, a, a whether it's whether you think those guys are high end second liners, mid, mid level second liners or lower level first liners, the, the odds of you getting any of that with a pick in the you know mid to late 20s is quite low. Yeah, and and that's that's great to frame it because I think oftentimes people are are somewhat guilty of saying, "Oh, we'll just trade him for a first, right?" But I think I hopefully in that pick value chart from Dom Lucision, and if you haven't seen it before, go check it out on the Athletic. Hopefully, I was able to illustrate that there is a wide gap in what a first round pick is. Like I just told you, the difference between first and fourth is the same as four, fourth and 116th. Right. Like getting getting the 25th pick for a guy is not what you want to be doing. In all honesty, if you are in the mindset, truly in the mindset of I'm going to do anything I can to get elite talent, you're talking about the first, 
second and third picks. That's it. And so if you're not making decisions that get you the first, second, and third picks, then you're now judging them on a different scale because getting you the 25th pick isn't really giving you elite talent. It gives you another shot at elite talent. But again, you have to recognize that your probability of landing it is much lower and therefore you have to you have a different risk benefit ratio there. And this for those of you who are listening and maybe connecting these dots, this is why Prashant is obsessed with the future picks. This is why if if you ask him who he would trade certain guys for, uh even if the the payoff is delayed, he will often say for a 2022 first or a 2023 first and he will always bring up teams that to you right now sound like why would I want their first? Why would I want Phillies first? Why would I want uh, the Islanders first? Why would I want Boston's first? Because you think it's going to be in the teens or 20s. But he, what, what he's thinking here, I, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that you want to be Ottawa benefiting from what just happened to San Jose. San Jose? Who, who wanted San Jose's first in 2019? Not, or 2018? Not me. I wouldn't have wanted it. But guess what? That turned into Tim Stutzla. And if, if you told San Jose... Uh, Sorry, if you told Ottawa on that on the day they traded Carlson, they got a haul in that trade. They would have almost certainly traded Eric Carlson for Tim Stutzla straight up. And I'm not even sure San Jose, knowing what Tim Stutzla is now, would have been willing to make that kind of deal at that time. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a team that went to the conference finals and then bottomed out massively. And they were the perfect team to target because, Max, as you just walked through them, that was an aging team. That was a team that relied, just like you said, on a lot of different guys to get the job done. That introduces variance. That introduces variability. You have a couple guys have bad years. You have a couple guys like Joe Thornton become even older. Patrick Marlowe's leaving, you know, all that. That team just completely bottoms out. And so kind of the mindset of what I've been thinking about if you're, you know, Steve Eisman now is what teams right now look good or look okay today, but could be that basement dweller tomorrow. And by tomorrow, meaning next season or 2023. So whether that's Philly, that still relies a lot on Claude Giroux and Jacob Voracek, and those guys are both in their 30s. Uh, really have a huge hole in net right now with Carter Hart not being able to figure it out. Their defense is a bit in shambles behind Ivan Provorov. And so, you know, is Philly a team, once they go back to the Metro and they've got a rising Carolina, a rising New York Rangers team, still have to deal with Pittsburgh, still have to deal with Washington. You bring Toronto back into the Eastern Conference. Is Philly a team that now is sitting with a lottery pick in their hands, potentially in 22 or 23 you know, same thing for Boston. Eventually that core is going to catch up to them. The Islanders, you got to think at some point the Barry Trotz magic wears off. 
Um, but it's it's that kind of move. It's what Colorado did to Ottawa in the Matt Duchesne deal, and they get uh, you know Bowen Byram out of it. And then it's what Ottawa does to San Jose when they're a Carson deal and they get Tim Stutzla out of it. That's the kind of deal the Wings need to be making in the interest of elite talent. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's something to that idea for sure. I mean, but the, but ultimately, this is the thing that you're constantly weighing is if you have if you have the makings of a team that in the right amount of time can be in that mold of a bunch of sixty you know fifty to sixty point guys, you know that that's kind of your insurance against not winning the lottery. If you can be a team that has five or six fifty to sixty point forwards, which I think the Red Wings could, if you think about Larkin, Manta. Bertuzzi, Zadina, Raymond, they add one more, you know, that's two line. That's two really, really good lines, um, two kind of NHL average first lines. Um, and can that make up for that kind of elite top line Bruin composition, that elite top line lightning composition? Um, you know, I think the lightning have, have been kind of the model team um, in the way they've done this, you know, part, partly because of this, they've drafted absurdly well. And, and you get guys like Braden Point and Anthony Sorelli and, and Nikita Kucherov in the late second and third rounds. And of course, you're going to be unbelievably good. That's not sustainable. I don't even think Tampa could have possibly known what they were getting uh, at the time there. But, you know, you brought up that stat about the difference between first and fourth and the difference between fourth and 116th or 60th. 116th. 16th. So, but what that what that also reinforces to me is that those third and fourth round picks that we've been talking about potentially Detroit adding in this uh, in this at this trade deadline, uh, yeah, you're you're probably not getting one of those guys. Probably no chance. But if you could pick up a thirty point forward, a forty point forward in the third or fourth round, if you can pick up an NHL defenseman, like I think the Red Wings probably not probably will have a real shot of having done this last draft between Donovan Sabrango and Emil Vero. I think they've given themselves a real shot at getting an NHL defenseman out of the third round. That's just a monumental win. And and so the more third round picks you have, the more chances at that you have, the more second round picks you have, the more chances you have at that. And really in the second round and beyond you get an NHL player, you should be jumping for joy. Yeah. And, and that's really the gist of it. Just given how, uh, you know, how rare it is sometimes for these guys to really make the progressions and, you know, getting those third and fourth round picks, you're always hoping for an NHL or, uh, uh, to see if you can land someone, but you're also hoping that maybe you get a guy like Braden point. Yeah. You're, you're taking home split. run swings. You're getting right. risky. You're, you're, right. And yeah. so that's the other thing is with those picks, you want to be approaching those picks from not who is, who do I think is safely a, like has most of for their sure. outcomes with, you know, maybe being average NHL or below, you want to maybe be swinging on the guys who have the most marbles left in that first line winger, first line center, first pairing defenseman bucket. There may not be a lot, but those are the kind of skill swings you want to see. And so, you know, we talk about this with a number of different teams. Carolina is a team that's done a really nice job of this yes. over the years, you know, swinging, uh, you know, on guys like Jameson Rees, Patrick Pistola, Anthony Honka, you know, on and on and on, Dominic Fence or well, Slavin I think, and Pesci are mid round guys. Yeah. yeah. Slavin and Pesci are mid round guys. I think, you know, Colorado's done a nice job of this in their drafts. Uh, you know, and then I think even last year, Toronto did a really nice job in their draft, taking some swings on some guys, uh, you know, that that have a lot of high end school. I mean, VT Mietinen uh, is a guy I think the, the Leafs got in the sixth or seventh round. Can't remember for sure right now, but. He's a guy who led the entirety of Liga in, in shots on goal. I mean, the guy literally was a monster. Uh, and, and, and that's the kind of skill swings you want to be taking with those later round picks. So, 
uh, all in all, I think there's a different mentality and mindset. Maybe the the first pick and second pick and third pick, you're trying to comfortably make sure you're not busting. Uh, and then the later picks, you're saying, all right, I comfortably want to swing on who's got that highest upside, who's got the most marbles in that highest bucket. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's true. Uh, so anyway, that, that's kind of what we wanted to talk about for, for the show today is just establishing those those kind of cutoffs. And, and when we say this, what do we really mean and, and what's fair to expect and what's fair to hope for? I mean, even with like a guy like Raymond, I wouldn't hold him to the bar of like if he doesn't become a 60 to 70 point winger, that's somehow a, a disappointment. Um, now there might be some disappointment in the fact that that's what, that's what, uh, you know, that's what the reality is, you know, for, for as much suffering as the, as the season was last year. And there was, you know, certainly that's what you hope is that it, it pays off in a, um, in one of those elite players. But, but if Lucas Raymond to me is a, is a 55 to 65 point two way forward, uh, that's a really good player. That's a first line player to me. Yeah. And I think, you know, just for... And I think it can be better. I don't want to make people think I don't think Leek Lucas Raymond can be better than that. But I, I think that's like a, like, that's a really good outcome. Yeah, I, I would completely agree. And I think the disclaimer I'll add here, just just because I don't think I've actually said this, is draft talent is not distributed equally from year to year. You know, we talked about last year being yeah. a great year. This year, maybe being more of a down year. Fourth pick overall this year is not the same as the fourth pick overall last year. I think I've been on record saying the first overall pick this year would probably go 10th. Uh, if they had, if they were in the draft last year. So there's certainly a, a difference in, in the range of outcomes, even within a draft. Um, but that being said, you know, Lucas Raymond's a guy who, if he's in this draft, he's going first overall because he's the best player in this draft. So uh, that's possible. It, it, yeah. it is. And so I, that's where I think just the end of the day, rein it in. I know people, people rat, like to rag on me for being super pessimistic about these guys, but look, I'd rather be pleasantly surprised and constantly disappointed well and it's not even pessimistic it's just having an understanding of what you know like yes there are some elite elite players in this league and you really want to have one to win but you know it's, to me like you, you talk about someone like a raymond and, and i really do think that he has this these qualities about him you know in terms of his competitiveness in terms of his skill the blend that those two things have he's shown a knack for for showing up in big moments you know those are what i call star power um, but what I what I get nervous about is that people think oh star power means ninety points and that's not necessarily what it means it it might just mean you're a top line player and you're a stud in the playoffs which is kind of how I mean it um, and so I just think these are kind of relevant things to keep in the back of your mind and and understand that you can't control. Uh, a lot of this stuff, almost nobody can control it. I mean, the team that's picking can't control it. The player can't control it because if they could, everyone in this league would be a 100 point player and elite would mean, you know, you have to be Gretzky or whatever, right? Like it's, these, these are not particularly, um, you know, controllable outcomes here. Um, so uh, anyway, I, I don't want to lecture here too long, but I, I just thought it was a relevant kind of topic to, to go, to go after for today, because number one, we had some time and, um, number two, I think it's something that you and I have been, have been talking about and thinking about. I mean, especially as some of these Red Wing, um, prospects in Sweden come over, I think it's going to be relevant because, uh, you know, I think Albert Johansson's a, a, a potentially good offensive defenseman. And if he scores 30 points, I don't want people to think that he actually isn't an offensive defenseman. No, that would place him among the top 60 defensemen in the NHL if he scores 30 points. Um, and I just think that's relevant. Yeah. And it's super important. So just as you're moving forward, as the Wings, you know, acquire some draft picks next week, as the, uh, you know, draft hits us soon enough coming up in the summer, uh, just keep these kind of tiers in mind, what it really means to be in each of those, how rare it is to actually find someone 
that's going to be in each of those and maybe kind of rein in a little bit of the perspective and it'll sort of help you kind of gauge when a guy is ready to transition, what they're going to look like and maybe what their future looks like moving forward. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not going to twist the knife on you too much on this one, but you know, a guy like Philip Peronek, uh, I think our listeners are going to be quick to point out as they hear this one, you know, he's a guy who's, who's over an 82 game season would be on pace for 45 points. I mean, that would put him, you know, in the top 30, I believe of, of kind of what you expect a defenseman to turn in, in a given year. Um, now that's not me saying he's a top 30 defenseman in the NHL. That would be a number one. It's, it's not me even saying he's a top 60 defenseman in the NHL, which you would qualify as kind of a first pair, but it's why I'm rather resolute in saying that he's a, a second pair or, or kind of top four guy. Um, because frankly, the, the number of defensemen, um, who score like him, I don't know how many you will find that are going to be at a, you know, even above like 37, 38 point season, uh, you know, points per season pace who, who aren't in the top 120 defensemen, you know? Yeah. And, and again, putting it in the context of draft slot, Philip Peronik's a guy who grossly outperformed his draft slot. Way outperformed. Right. Yeah. So again, bringing those expectations back in where he's at right now is well ahead of where he should have been relative to kind of what the average player drafted at his draft if slot. you got him with the 20th pick, you're very happy. If I you think. took him instead of Dennis Cholowski in the first round, I think you're very happy. Sure. Right? So, you know, that's that's that exact dilemma. So I think he, I mean, he really outperformed where he's at. It's just now the challenge of kind of really, you know, kind of placing where he's truly at. You know, that's always here, neither here nor there. But relative to the draft position, relative to the context of the talk. He is grossly outperformed where he's at. Yeah. I mean, so here, here's kind of one exercise that we could have done this. I'm, I'm almost a little bummed that we didn't. But, you know, there's all those redraft articles out there on the Internet of, of people redrafting, um, you know, a given year's draft with with the hindsight, the benefit of hindsight. And it can be fun to see, wow, the, the guy who goes number four now went number 25 in his draft year. or You know, in Pasternak's case, that might be number one for his draft year, um, although I think Braden Point might be a little ahead of him. And he went in the third round, so even, even more. But it's, it can also be really informative to scroll down to like number 17, like scroll down, just right one past the lottery, um, or, or I guess that maybe that's 16, um, and, and see who it is and just see, okay, if you trade for a playoff team's first round pick in any given year, that's kind of your best case, like, and go, and go scroll to who's number 16 and see what it is. And that's a really useful tempered thing. And that's the best case, you know, do it again at 25, do it again at, at the end of the first round. Cause they're usually just first rounds and see what's reasonable. And then you can look back and really recontextualize. Okay. You know, even in hindsight, this is how many players of this caliber there are in a given draft. And you might find yourself that by the time you're in, in the, in the late twenties, you know, that, that second pair defenseman, or even in some cases, kind of a third pair defenseman or a middle six forward, uh, looks like a pretty good outcome. Yeah. I think that's a great way to do it. If you go back and just read those redraft articles, see, you know, scroll down to the point where you're like, huh, you know, that's not really that great of a get. Uh, and, and you'll find that that kind of comes up a little bit earlier than you would have expected. Yeah. And we're not trying, we're not saying don't trade for first round picks. We're just saying, understand what the likely outcome is and that really the utility of doing it is a shot at the elite more so than the guarantee of the good. Exactly. All right. All right, uh, I think we might have just run right through our allotted mailbag time. And uh, since I didn't call for questions anyway, <laughs> I think we might just wrap it up there. Red Wings have two games against the Predators uh, this week. They'll be back at home Tuesday and Thursday. And then who they play this weekend? Carolina? Yep. 
Yep. So they'll be at, they'll be at Carolina. Should be interesting. I mean, I'm I'm very curious to see how they come out against Nashville. Uh, certainly, the last game in Nashville did not leave a very good taste in anybody's mouth. So. Uh, I'm very curious to see how how they come out for that one. But either way, whatever happens, we'll be back at you uh, later this week. We'll only get one game uh, in in before the next episode, but we'll be back at you then uh, to talk all about it. See ya.